You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. We have David Sacconi with us. David is an assistant professor of political science at George Washington University. Uh, he's a fairly recent graduate of Columbia University, but you want to know it from his CV, which is long, uh, with publications in all the right places, um, journals uh, such as the American Political Science Review, uh, Journal of Politics, Quarterly Journal of Political Science. I could go on. Um, David's a very accomplished scholar. He works on uh, corruption. Uh, elections, uh, participation of uh, business people in politics in Russia. He has a very uh, interesting book uh, uh, currently under review, book manuscript currently under review on the latter topic, on the uh, role of business people in politics uh, in Russia. Uh, he, in addition to his affiliation at George Washington University, is affiliated with the International Center for the Study of uh, Institutions and Development at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow and he's uh, also currently between the first and second year of uh, a Harvard Academy Fellowship, which is a prestigious fellowship that's given to uh, young scholars who are studying other parts of the world. So it's a great pleasure to have David with us uh, today. We look forward to your talk. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to speak about Russia, so kind of frankly, in a very different context that I'm used to, at least that perspective. This is joint work with John Reuter, who I believe was here last Thursday. It's this exact same time, so. I'm really excited that you get to see two of our many projects together. Um, and this one is, is pretty new work. We're, we're drawing on some surveys that are probably only about six or seven months old. But I, we hope that this is kind of fresh off the presses. Your comments and feedback are going to be especially helpful. So it, the paper is really motivated by what we see two trends over the last say, seven, eight years, especially since 2011 having to do with Russian elections, which is, one, this incredible investment in cleaning up the electoral atmosphere since December 2011 and the protests that followed. And for people that kind of follow the issue closely, this is the video um, observation software, the cameras that are installed in just about every single electoral precinct around the country immediately after the December 2011 Duma elections in preparation for the presidential election three months later. And this is still used in every regional and federal election since then, where there's control hubs and online portals. You can go in and pick your precinct and go and see exactly how the votes are being counted. And it's this example of a you know, pretty non-democratic regime has tons of flaws in the electoral system, investing millions of dollars in a cutting edge technology in order to open up the electoral box and show that you know, elections are much more free and fair, potentially, than they get credit for in the media and so forth. So this is an, an investment in electoral integrity. But at the same time, you have this incredible chart from about four months ago. If people follow politics in Primorsky Cry, the gov governor's election, the second round, where you have you know, the independent candidate, Ishenko, or you know, he's communist, because he, he was independent. But, the communist candidate leading the entire time. So basically, on the x-axis here, we have how many votes have been counted. And on the y-axis, we have the, the person with the most votes. And you can see that as the day is progressing and more and more votes are coming, he's building a quite sizable lead. 
And then right here between 90 and 100%, this is the last hour of the vote tabulation, you see this nice spike of the United Russia candidate at the end taking the election from him. So this is, what? Exactly. This is like very blatant electoral fraud just four months ago at the same time as this incredible investment in electoral integrity. And ultimately they had to have a third round to the election and the UR candidate kept office. So they, they preserved the seat through blatant electoral fraud. There were no protests, no real fallout. So on one hand, you have investments in improving electoral processes. On the other hand, you have this fraud that continues to be perpetrated. And that kind of gives this big question for our wider research agenda, which is, does electoral fraud stabilize authoritarian rule or undermine it? When leaders intervene in elections like they did in Primorsky Cry, are they prolonging their, their stay in power? Or are they potentially sowing the seeds of discontent and aggravating potential protesters and citizens that are going to get angry and hold them accountable for messing with elections in a meaningful way? And in, in the political science literature, we don't have a great answer on this question. On one hand, it's kind of the Eschenko, Primorsky cry view, which is that fraud helps win elections and signal to all the different parties around the country that this regime is here to stay. It's got incredible administrative capacity to tip elections in its favor. And you don't want to organize against it because all the levers of power that are key are still in the hands of the regime. So in that sense, orchestrating electoral fraud is going to increase the ability of the United Russia and Putin and the Kremlin to stay in power. Now, for all the people that are scholars of the color revolution, you might have a very different perspective on electoral fraud, which is that people get quite angry and it's a great trigger for collective action to go out in the streets and say, democracy is being undermined from underneath us. This is the time for us to come together and challenge the regime. So here we don't, we, there's a nice puzzle here of whether or not blatantly committing electoral fraud is going to increase regime chances of survival or decrease them. So what we're going to ask in this paper are two questions. And one of them I'll give you the answer straight away, and the other one I'll kind of leave you guessing and answer it by the end of the presentation. And it's very simple, which is when the government intervenes in elections and manipulates them to its own advantage, does this increase or decrease support for the regime? Unsurprisingly, we find a very negative effect in that when the government is caught in the act with its hand in the ballot box, people get quite angry and remove their support. So fraud is costly in the sense that there are punishments and voters are generally not supportive of the fact that their elections are being undermined. But the bigger question, I think, where the contribution of this paper is, is what type of voters are turned off by fraud? When the regime is incurring this type of anger or dissatisfaction, who leaves first and who leaves in larger numbers? And I'll kind of leave you guessing on this one because the answer might be a little bit counterintuitive. And that's why I think I'm going to spend more time on this second question than the first one. But before I get there, I want to talk a little bit about electoral fraud in Russia, especially if you're not as familiar with the subject. And we run surveys about three times a year with the Levada Center, asking a ton of questions about how Russians evaluate the elections that are happening every single September or even more frequently. And one of the big things that, that stands out is that Russians hold pretty democratic values and that find most commonly accepted forms of electoral manipulation to be unacceptable. So when you look at things like that are pretty harmless, such as attending an opening ceremony for a cultural or sporting event in the month before election, this type of credit claiming, ribbon cutting activity, okay, pretty good spread. But when you go into the things that you start to read in the New York Times and that start to trigger protests, such as limiting opposition candidates from appearing on TV, or you know, 
recruiting people to attend political rallies with liquor or food, or organizing carceli, you know, when you get that nice marshrutka and you put all the voters in and you go to many different precincts and everybody gets to vote as many times as they can for exchange for vodka or food. You see that the overwhelming majority of Russian citizens find this completely unacceptable. And that when you look at other different dimensions, Russians de generally demand that elections be conducted openly, transparently, and with a lot of, not a lot of this malfeasance that actually starts to crop up. And this is pretty important for our story, is that the priors of Russians about democracy are quite strong, even though the government itself is quite undemocratic, and the elections have systemic problems that have been uncovered time and time again. So what we do, and I'll talk a little bit about how this works, is we jump right in and say, okay, we want to know how citizens react to learning that their elections are fraudulent. We know that they find it unacceptable in just kind of observational queries, but let's go in experimentally and give respondents different information about how elections were conducted and see how they react. So how many people in the room are familiar with what a survey experiment is? A couple, so I'll go into a little bit of detail. Basically what we do is we do a survey of about 1,600 people in Russia across the entire country, and we split the sample in two. In this sense, we split it in 12, but it's easier to explain if I split it in two. And half of them get one set of information, and the other half get the same information but with a tiny little tweak. We call that like a treatment or some extra information, and we compare how the two groups in aggregate respond. So in this sense, we're going to be telling all of our respondents about a fictional candidate from the United Russia ruling party. Just a normal guy from United Russia who's 50 years old, and he in wants increased support for schools, and he wants to build some new roads. You know, he hasn't done some positive things. He's adopted two disabled children from a local orphanage. So on one hand, he's got some like, kind of nice qualities to him. But what we do is we randomly give the respondents some extra information about how he behaved during the previous electoral campaign. So what we might call the control group means they get all this information about this guy, but as far as they know, he didn't do anything bad during the electoral campaign. But for the other groups, we're going to say that he gave out presents to voters, organized those carousels, so he facilitated people voting multiple times, or he threatened several colleagues, so he tried to intimidate people to vote for him all three very, very common forms of electoral malpractice in Russia. And what we're doing is trying to compare how respondents and Russian citizens react to finding out whether or not a candidate from the ruling party committed some violation in the run-up to the election. And what we want to know is how likely they would support him on a scale of one to five. For the purpose of this survey, we also wanted to see whether or not his professional background mattered. I'm not going to talk a lot about these results, partly because they're null but also because they're not as central to the research question that we're talking about. So we do randomly <coughs> decide whether or not he's a doctor or an entrepreneur, but in fact, we don't find any results. So what does this look like when we analyze it? I'm not going to show very any, any regression tables. I think I have one. So it's mostly tables. But we should be. If you have any questions, let me know if it's something hard to interpret. But basically, on the y-axis, we have this 1 to 5 scale. How much do you like the guy? 5 if you love him. 1 if you would never vote for him under any circumstances. And we find that when you don't tell about any electoral malpractice, people are generally positively disposed. You know, across the three different types, it's about, you know, 3.4, which is they're, they're more likely to vote for him than not. You know, there's a lot of partisans that support that. But once you start telling the respondents that he did something a little bit off, such as buying votes or facilitating multiple voting or threatening his colleagues, support drops markedly 
under three, which is kind of that median category. So the big takeaway from here is that voters don't like candidates who commit fraud. I'm sure a lot of you are like, well, duh, right? But, you know, there are a, a lot of reasons why, especially in Russia, that might not be expected. They could be really partisan. They could love United Russia so much that they would be able to tolerate anything that he did wrong in order to get their preferred party in power. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, but just the fact that voters are turned off by fraud in Russia is illuminating. And it opens up lots of questions, such as Navalny and other activists that are trying to spread information about fraud. That matters, because if voters learn about it, they're going to maybe re remove their support for the government, and that fraud is potentially toxic for the ruling party. OK, that's the obvious finding. But we're going to break that down a little bit more. And that's that second part, which is that strong regime supporters, the core of Putin's base, think your pensioners, your factory workers, the people who work for state budget offices that are reliant on the government for their salary, people that were there with Putin and the Kremlin and ruling party from the very beginning, they're the ones that are going to be most angry about fraud. And you're like, wait, why was that? Why would the core people be the most angry? And we argue that this is because people who support the Kremlin, people who support the ruling party, believe that Russia has free and fair elections. And they think that, in general, the tenets of democratic competition are being upheld by their government. This is before they learn about the fraud. On the, on the opposite side are the opposition people. They read Twitter. They read all the independent newspapers in Novaya Gazeta. And they know that there's going to be blatant fraud committed all the time. So they have expectations that things are going to be a little bit off. Therefore, when you give them information that the elections weren't that positive or weren't that fairly conducted, they're going to be like, no surprise. I knew this all the time because of the media diet that I'm under. So here it's that the core supporters are more likely to pull back their support. They're the people that are going to be most alarmed, most angered, frustrated, and most willing to defect from the winning coalition when they learn that this government that they thought was clean and handling elections quite properly is actually doing other things on the side. And that they're in this state of kind of disbelief or misinformation, but when you give them accurate data or accurate anecdotes about something going wrong, they're the ones that think, okay, it's time to rethink my support for the government. <coughs> now, this isn't necessarily what you might expect under these conditions. And now I want you to put on your American politics hats, which is that when we talk about electoral fraud in this country, and a lot of the studies about polarization is that because our identity is oftentimes so connected to our political party, we're willing to ratify and justify just about anything that our preferred candidates and parties do, this is a theory, because we're so worried about the other party taking power. Republicans might say, you know, voter suppression and fraud is, you know, regrettably acceptable because if we cleared all the barriers, the access to the ballot, then the Democrats might win. And if the Democrats might win, this country is just going to go downhill right away. And we call that their kind of motivated reasoning, that we are going to justify the actions of the party or the government that we support the most, no matter how foul they might be, because our team needs to win at any cost. So it's not essentially clear whether or not that core supporter, that core Putin voter, would be responsive to information about fraud or not at all. And, and in some sense, people might think that that core supporter is the one that's going to stick by the regime through thick and thin because they don't want Putin or anybody else in the party 
to lose their seat or to lose their access to power because the alternative would be so much worse. And again, this is kind of the narrative or the rhetoric that the government often gives. Is there's no alternative to us. We can't have free, fair elections because somebody else might win and they can't control such an unruly, ungovernable country. Only we can do so. Now this relies on an assumption, which is that Russians believe that their elections are free and fair. And this might be the, one of the most surprising kind of normal findings of the paper, is that in, or not normal, but kind of like not experimental findings of the paper, is that in general, even as we as scholars have seen elections become less and less free and fair and more manipulated as the ruling party's been in power, Russian views haven't really changed much. In general, on a one to five point scale, they think that national level elections are conducted quite fairly. Perhaps even more surprising is they was asking them whether or not they think they live in a democracy. And as the regime has gone conventionally more democratic over the last 16 years, the percentage of people answering questions over regular polls in Russia has now up to 63% in 2016 believe that they're living in a democracy. And there's good work in political science that shows, okay, well you might think, well they don't understand what a de real democracy is, their definition is different. But there's good cross-national work is that even across really different cultural settings, people generally have a consensus definition of what elections are supposed to look like, what is necessary for real competition to take place between candidates. And that the Russian views of democracy are not often some kind of like outer space. They know how to evaluate their country by a set of democratic principles. And what they see, the inf using the information they have, is that Russia is actually quite democratic. And that's key to this argument is because the core regime supporters, we argue, actually believe they live in a democracy. And they believe that most of the elections have abundance of choice and that their vote is actually going to be meaningful. These are the only regression tables I'm going to show you. I'll go by really quickly. I even tried to put them in red so we can focus on what's important. When we put those three questions in, just a normal regression formula, we find that people who really like Putin, I have a thing, and people that really like United Russia, both of them, believe that elections are free and fair, that they actually have impact, and that Russia is a democracy. Then we looked at 15 countries that are all authoritarian, Uganda, Vietnam, Singapore, around the world in different contexts, which by scholars have shown are not having free and fair elections, the more you support the ruling party, the better your perceptions are of democracy in there. There's a strong correlation. And yes, it's going to be endogenous. There's going to be played back and forth both ways. But that, in general, supporting the ruling party usually thinks that you are more inclined democratically. But what's interesting is that when we talk about those same questions I mentioned before, which is how acceptable are certain types of fraud, you don't see really any effect. So it's not like the ruling party supporters are like, yes, go out and undermine elections. They're not more likely to do that, but they are more likely to believe that things are kind of sitting pretty quite well in their electoral environment. And that's really interesting, again, we try to show this as cross-nationally as possible, that this is not specific to Russia. And it's actually more pronounced in other non-democratic countries. That people, like something like 92% of Vietnamese believe that they're living in a democracy. And that's like several waves of the World Value Survey, something that you can see quite obviously in the data. Again, that relies on this consensus definition of democracy, but as far as we can tell, the gaps between countries are not that significant, where they really believe that democracy is something so far from our definition of the West. So then the main question that we show is that that first survey experiment, remember? The idea of getting information of fraud, you learn that the election that you just voted in or the candidate that you thought you were going to support did something illegal and violated electoral integrity. 
we find that the more likely that you support Putin or United Russia, the more you're going to pull back your support. That fraud is affecting the core regime supporters. It's undermining the coalition more than it is affecting people who already supported Navalny, who already knew that fraud was going on. So therefore, the regime has a ton to lose. Because if their core supporters learn that, that some of the candidates are doing something off of the ballot box, they're the people that are going to defect en masse and the highest numbers. That's the extent of the first experiment. I have two more that I want to talk about really briefly that might talk about some concerns. But any questions before we get going on? I'm happy to take any if people aren't clear. OK. Then there's this other question that I want to talk about really briefly, which is, OK, we asked these people to imagine a candidate out of thin air. We didn't give them a name, because we want to ask 1,600 people. It was vague. It was abstract. We couldn't give them a choice of another candidate because of the way the survey was held out. So you could say, yeah, they might not like that guy, but they might just stay home. They're not going to vote. It's not going to change anything electorally. You're just giving them some kind of ridiculous situation and asking them to evaluate somebody who obviously did something wrong. And in the last couple of years, when people looking at Russian politics, you see this trend where you know, turnout has really fallen. Only about 20, 30% of Russians vote in certain elections. And those people who do vote are the, I think you had a talk on civic duty last week, right? They're the committed supporters of the government that feel that it's their responsibility to turn out every single election. So the question might arise, well, I had one more thing, that voters could be turned off by fraud and stay home, but the regime still wins elections. So it's not really costly. Some people might get angry, but you're still going to get the candidates winning every single time, no matter what they do. So what we do is we run two more experiments. Same thing as last time, except what we want to do is figure out whether or not fraud makes people stay home. Because you know, if you were told that election that you were participating in was not free and not fair and you know, was going to be flawed from the very beginning, you might decide not to participate at all. It doesn't matter who you would support because you never get to the ballot box in the first place. So we're going to do a very similar thing as we did last time, except that half the people are going to give the choice of whether or not they're going to support a candidate, and the other half are going to give the choice of whether or not they're even going to vote. And we're going to compare them side by side. So basically what we're interested in is, does fraud make you pull back from a United Russia candidate, or does it make you stay home, and how does that interact with whether or not you support the Kremlin in the first place. Is that clear? Got a couple nods. I'm going to keep pushing it. Here's what it looks like. Candidates that support or that commit fraud lose support. We did this again a year after our original survey. This is the one from six months ago. So we can replicate our findings. We're not something specific to the survey we did in one data point one time. We still find that candidates that do something bad lose support from the average voter. And we find that voters that learn about candidates committing fraud stay home in larger numbers, as we expect. Fraud makes people not support certain politicians, and it makes them kind of less excited about participating in the democratic context, in the democratic process. But what's interesting is we find the exact same relationship as we did before when you talk about candidate support, so that the more you support Putin, the more likely you're going to say, oh man, I'm not really going to support one of his party's candidates because I know they did something wrong. 
But you don't find the same thing, and if anything, it's quite positive on turnout. So how do we make of that? This means that strong Putin supporters, when they hear about fraud, continue to vote. They don't stay home. It doesn't affect their willingness to participate in what they know to be a flawed process. And this is probably because of what the talk about last week was about civic duty, this responsibility to rain and shine, to turn out and vote. But when they get there, they don't vote for United Russia. They're going to be more likely to support an independent or an opposition candidate. And this is why we see fraud as potentially so costly for the government, is that their core base continues to legitimate elections, but when they get there, they're checking a different box on the ballot. Yeah? How do you know they're not just rolling off? So they turn out to vote, they vote in other races, but in this race they don't. We don't. And the, we don't, you know, there used to be protestier, and now that's not there anymore. So we're, we're trying to make this argument in the paper that the removal of that option and that they're going to be kind of discriminating as they go on. I mean, what we know from American politics that, you know, if you go to the first one, you're probably going to check all the other boxes or something like that. I don't know. We can't test that systematically, but our conjecture is if you thought they were staying home, we definitely know that they're not staying home about that same candidate. And as far as we know, those same people are probably like to pull back, but we can't. It would be fun to do an experiment and actually see people in the ballot box, how they fill out different things. I don't know if Lovato will let us do something that involves with this. <laughs> On the right side? Yeah, because it's kind of it's in the negatives, right? Yeah, so we know from this slide that fraud makes everybody go right. negative. Yeah, so so that's like much. overall everybody is going to stay home, uh -huh. except that there's not a significant difference between whether or not you like like Putin or don't like Putin. It's all it's most it's basically a flat line that everybody is equally turned off by fraud and stays home. Uh -huh. Whereas when you look at whether or not they support candidates. The opposition really doesn't care if there's fraud. They're not even inclined to support the ruling party candidate anyways. It's the people that were, you know, the core supporters that their support drops the most. Okay, so what does this tell us? And I think there's a, a lot of rich implications, potentially, if we've got our story right and we can flesh it out with more experiments and keep flooring about how Russian politics works right now. And the first is that partisanship in Russia is not so strong that regime candidates are excused by malfeasance by pro-regime voters. People are not willing to accept everything that comes down the pipeline electorally. They perhaps are committed to democratic values, and they're not willing to just bless the ruling party. And it's, maybe it's corruption, but in this case, electoral fraud, they're not that strongly committed to the set of institutions, they, or to the set of individuals that right now are in power, that they wouldn't take back their support quite quickly if their democratic principles were violated. And the next one is that autocrats, or people like Putin, you know, support, conceal fraud not just to stem protest, but also to stop core supporters from deserting. So that if we believe that strong supporters still turn out, they might be more likely to lean to the opposition. And this is where I get back to that first slide, is it helps explain the regime's investments in electoral integrity. The regime is investing millions of dollars in these cameras and putting, or, um, putting that, uh, is it Panfilova? I always mix it up with Ella Panfilova, yeah? yeah? As the Central Election Commission chair. You know, trying to make these outward um, overtures to electoral integrity. And we think from the West, potentially, that's because they're worried about uh, protests happening on the streets. 
This research suggests they're, they're not as worried about that. And if anything, they know how to handle that, prevent it, and use all kinds of administrative levers from, from having it get out of hand. But that they're worried about the people that believe that they're living in a democracy pulling back from the, from the government. And this is our kind of final quirky line in the paper, is that Russian authorities perform democracy because many voters believe in the facade of democracy. And if you, you know, read a lot of conventional media accounts, or God forbid, turn on the TV and hear a lot of people on the TV talking about Russia, they often cast the average Russian citizen as you know, authoritarian in view, or totally accepting of all the changes that Putin has you know, enforced in society to restrict access and restrict participation. But when you start to survey people, even as institutional quality has deteriorated in the last 15 years, there's still a strong demand for democratic procedures among the Russian populace. And when they get information that things aren't working out as they, as they once thought, they're very willing to, to turn away from the government. And we should still, even after the last 20 years, there's, there's much stronger commitment to democracy overall than I think the average Russian gets credit for, especially in a lot of conventional media accounts. And finally, we talk about, you know, there's some great work. I think Christine Evans is coming next week, is that it? Uh, March. In March. <laughs> She's got this great paper where they talk, and, and Hannah Chetman's done on this work on this too, the call-in lines. So, you know, there's like Putin talking to the, to the whole country, and people are calling up and asking him, you know, to intervene and help solve problems. And one of the big takeaways of her argument, which I think is fascinating, is that he's really placing a strong emphasis on going through formal institutions by voting people out if they're not doing well, by using petitions if you're not getting responses. He's committing himself to the legislatures and the councils and the officials that are oftentimes democratically elected up and down the chain and telling voters, I don't want to hear necessarily from you directly, personally, that's not going to resolve it. I want you to take your complaints and maybe participate, as long as you're not trying to take down the regime, but to get your voice heard within the institutional apparatus that looks very democratic and oftentimes functions very democratically. And we kind of incorporate that to say that there's this demand for democracy in some shape and form, and some voters believe that they're getting, and because of propaganda or other type of media investments, that facade or that charade where there's so many different things that are happening right now to undermine elections, not everybody's getting accurate information about it, and if they did, the situation could markedly change. And I can talk a little bit more about where they're gonna get their information, how they're gonna evaluate for accuracy, how we actually try to account for all the problems of absorption and digestion of information. We know that if, you know, not everybody who reads Navalny's Twitter believes everything in there or picks up Novaya Gazeta, they're gonna be discriminatory in what they believe and what they don't. But if they're made to believe, if they're convinced that fraud is happening or that the regime is undermining institutions, they're gonna potentially punish, it, punish the regime for it. And that gives incentives for other actors to expose and bring to light a lot of these practices because there's a ready coalition that maybe is not eager for the information but responds in ways that are typical in other Western democracies to receiving you know, unhappy news about the way elections are.